Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we've got Jared back and we are going to talk through another case study. This week, the case study is going to be on a family with a taxable estate. So assets of about $25 million or more. And so in this case study, we want to dive into what are some of the problems they have? What are some of the opportunities we want to be aware of? And really, a lot of this is what questions are we asking? And what questions can we provide answers to? Hopefully, some of them we can provide answers to on the front end. But really, that's a lot of financial planning, figuring out what are the questions we should be asking. And uh, some of them answerable, some of them will eventually be answerable. And so with that being said, Jared, where should we get started? I think a good place to start is just let's paint some context, right? Let's introduce, let's introduce our contestants, if you will, to this case study podcast. Justin, if you want to pull up your screen share. Today, our two contestants are Teddy and Teresa Taxable. They're 65. They have three kids. They spend time between Houston, Texas and Bozeman, Montana. And I guess caveat here, they spend the majority of the year in Houston because if you spend the majority of your tax year in Texas, you pay no state income tax. So they like the summers in Bozeman, but also love the no state income tax in Texas. So that's how they kind of set up their- uh, I've always wanted to go to Bozeman. Jared, have you ever been to Bozeman? I have not. It's not on my bucket list, It's but it's just, it's so far. Uh, I'm kind of just sequestered up there. But I feel like, you know, whenever you do go up there, you got to hit probably four or five national parks since you're up there and it's kind of remote. So true. I've always heard it's a really neat college town too. I don't even remember which college is up there. Maybe it's Montana State, but yeah, heard it's a great place. So shout out to Bozeman. Yeah. Teddy and Teresa are doing it right. So from an income perspective, they are already retired. They need half a million dollars a year and they don't have any debt and their total assets are 25 million. Justin, do you feel like there's any, before we get into the numbers, which we're very akin to do on this podcast, anything kind of philosophically or high level about these people that our listeners should be aware of, you think? Certainly when you, what we've done in these case studies is we look at this first screen and we start to think, okay, the very first 30 seconds that we know this situation, what are we thinking through? And the biggest thing I go to is three kids and age 65. So the stage of life they're in, the fact that there are three kids on the table, that also means there could be spouses for those three kids. There could be grandkids. And so that really dictates a lot of that total asset number 25 million. They're kind of on the border of a taxable estate. And so thinking through, well, what's their family situation and how do we incorporate the family into the financial plan? with assets that big. How about you, Jared? Yeah, I guess the only other thing I would add is like, I think it's worth sharing how this sample client got here. Like I think very highly compensated, ton of employer stock compensation that was just really thoughtfully diversified. And it was a two income household that made really good money. And there's a few different ways you can get to this point, or there's a multitude of ways. Most common we see are people that two income household, executive level compensation, or privately held businesses. And a lot of the planning and the strategies are going to be similar because it doesn't really matter how you got there. The results and some of the issues you're solving and opportunities you're planning for are really identical, but there's a multitude of different ways you can get there. But in the context of this person, how Teddy and Teresa got there, it was really high compensation and just a ton of equity awards and being a two-income household in a really low cost of living place. Yeah, that's a great call out. I totally agree. Those two paths are pretty different. And we might try to talk a little bit about both of those. If you have a private company that you own, that's a really good path to get here. But if you are executive level or close to it at a super major, you can get there. I think there's a couple different paths. And it's interesting, Jared, to kind of point out this is a case study where they're already 65, they've already got $25 million. Another interesting case study, and I'm kind of signing us up for more, so I don't know if we'll do this, is 
if you are 40 and you're on the executive path and you might have really big income now, but there's a chance that your income gets to more of a professional athlete level. And so what do you do if you're on that path? Because we'll hit on this in this case study, but it's a whole lot easier to do tax planning and estate planning before numbers get this big. Yeah, this is kind of somebody we're just now getting in front of. Because if we had, if Teddy and Teresa were clients 20 years ago, the case study would look very different than this. Their total assets would probably be less because there would be more outside of their estate. It probably looks substantially different. So yeah, it's kind of a funny exercise. But we're assuming that we're getting in front of them today. And this is the first time we've engaged with them. And they've done a great job building. And now they're really looking to optimize. Well put. Okay. So let's look at assets here. So one of the things that's really common is qualified plans, about four and a half million dollars. And the math makes sense. Retirement plans haven't been around for hundreds of years. They're very fairly new vehicles and there's contribution caps. So once you get to a net worth this size, you're always going to have a portion in qualified plans, but it's never going to be the majority just because mathematically with the number of years you work and had eligible income in the contribution maximum, even with an aggressive employee match, it's going to make up a minority percentage of your balance sheet. So you got a 401k and IRA. So kind of that pre-tax bucket with about four and a half million dollars. More interesting, the sizable portion of the portfolio is taxable investments. So Teddy and Teresa have been getting aggressive restricted stock and stock option compensation further back. And they've been kind of diversifying it, right? Usually this asset size, even if you've done a good job diversifying it and divesting it, the speed at which, the velocity at which it's come to you, they'll still have large embedded gains that we can kind of talk about and plan around, but they're going to have diversified some of it, retained some of it because it was super low basis and then invested some of it. But in their scenario, so they got about $20 million in taxable investments and it's kind of spread across a few different buckets. So they got private investments of 2 million. So a couple of hedge funds, maybe a private credit fund, and then a vending machine business. A lot of clients in this net worth will have some sort of more actively involved business that they've kind of acquired that kind of cash flows that they had a friend introduce them to, or just something where they were more actively involved versus just kind of passively getting a K-1 and answering the capital calls. And then the real estate assets too are substantial, right? Usually in this scenario. So they got a $2 million Houston home, a $1 million condo in Bozeman, and $1 million spread across several short-term rentals in Baytown. Usually just kind of as you accumulate, you'll start to just kind of acquire real estate. And it's interesting, something tangible, something you can hold. A lot of people have made a lot of money that way. It can really perform well, especially if you use leverage, right? And it can perform poorly, but the range of outcomes is really wide and it's really interesting. So they got a large taxable investment account. And then the remainder, the remaining assets, not mentioned, another 14 million is more vanilla stock bond exposure and then some company stock with really low gains that they're trying to kind of work around or and a few positions. Maybe they bought Apple in the late 90s or Amazon in the early 2000s. And the embedded gain is just so large that they've pretty much resolved in their mind that, hey, I'm never going to touch it because I've been a, they've been an investor for decades. And then they have a small little tax-free bucket as a function of kind of these IRA rollovers, but really there's never been a meaningful amount of contributions there. Or a lot of times they've been disqualified from contributing and didn't know about backdoor Roth. So they do have a little tax-free Roth bucket, but as a percentage of their balance sheet, it's tiny. Justin, what would you add there? The first thing that comes to my mind when I hear this is a question that there's not a right or wrong answer to. But I want to hear from Teddy and Teresa. Are you excited about your balance sheet continuing to have this much exposure in things that do require your attention a little bit? And so I'm thinking about me personally in this situation. The question I like to think through is, well, what if something happens to, let's say, Teresa runs point on the real estate. So they, they're they renting out real estate in Texas. That's up four. So that's 25% of their real estate portfolio. What if Teresa runs point on that? If something happens to Teresa, well, does Teddy know where those things are managed? Does Teddy know who the management company is, what the logins are to access those? Does Teddy know how to check? How much is this? When is it booked over the coming six months? Does Teddy want to continue to own them if something happens to Teresa? And so the parts of the balance sheet that do require a little bit more focus and attention, I think I want to ask the question, okay, you've won the game now, so you're in a financially good position. 
do you want to continue to have things in your balance sheet that require this? And the answer might be yes, and that's great, but it also might be no. So Jared, what do you think? I think that's a great call out, right? Like some of these investments require active participation, which isn't a bad thing, but it's the question is, is it your thing? They don't need a retirement analysis to know they're going to run out of money. 500,000 on 25 million, what is that, 2%? Yeah, they're, uh, two, they're two 2.5%, right? Reasonable amount. Yeah, so like, and, and they have no debt. And so the retirement projections aren't super valuable here. It's more of, hey, okay, it's great to build uncorrelated returns, right? Just have a bunch, have a really diversified portfolio. But it's like the more active participation, do you get excited about? If you are in Bozeman and you're hiking to the top of Yellowstone and one of your tenants loses power, do you have a good system in place that doesn't drive you crazy? So it's all about kind of thinking, hey, we're also gonna do some like technical planning, but like here, and of course, across every demographic, like lifestyle design should be a big part of how we think about the planning process. And for them, they have a more active portfolio, more active meaning actively involved in some of the investments, which may or may not be a bad thing. And for a lot of our retirees, pretty much nobody retires cold turkey. We've talked about that in old episodes. So sometimes having something like this is kind of a project is really energizing and fun. It's something to allocate your creative energy to and learn about, but sometimes it could be a train. So really We're not really going to talk about that, but that's a huge, important thing that fits into this conversation. Jared, another thing I just thought through, the vending machine business, that's another question. Who runs point on that? Who was the person between Teddy and Teresa that kind of mapped out, hey, who's our staff in this business? Who's the operator? Who runs it? Who is their bookkeeper and CPA? How close to retirement are they? And so kind of another question of, hey, it's been a good vehicle up to this point. Is it something that's still compatible with the life you want for the next 15 years? I mean, Jared, I will mention, I keep bringing up a bunch of negatives that, hey, you own real estate, it's work. You own this small company, it's work. That's not a bad thing. I get excited about working for a long time in retirement. So I'm not looking to get rid of all work, but you want to begin to ask the question, how compatible? Are these things with the life you want? And if something happens to the spouse that runs point on these things, whether it's Teddy or Teresa, does the other spouse have a general understanding of, hey, here's the organizational chart. Here's where everything is located. Here's how it runs. Here's where I log in. Here's the username and password for the 10 different websites that are required to own these things and run these things. And do the children. What if something happens to both Teddy and Teresa? What is that going to be like if the children inherit those things? Jared, I thought of one other thing. This is kind of a big question. So they have some enormous embedded gains. So we mentioned this could be, let's say that this is an executive at, we'll just say Chevron or insert any company. So they could be enormous embedded gains in their company stock. You also mentioned maybe they bought Amazon in early 2000s and now it has an enormous gain. One of the big questions here is just how much are we talking about? And this is super relevant with a privately held business as well. It's not uncommon to get to this point and, hey, you could have 15 of the 25 million in one or two companies. And so I do want to call that out, that that begins to be a question that you ask. Obviously, with the estate planning law right now, you get a step up in basis. If you bought something for $1 million and it's worth $15 million, there's an incentive to not sell it because when it passes down to the next generation, step up in basis is helpful. But there's also the reality that they're only 65. They could live for another 30 plus years. And hey, bad things happen to good companies. And let's say it's Amazon. We don't know what Amazon's going to be doing 20 years from now. And so that's kind of another call out. The size of the exposure they have to one or two companies, that would dictate some of the decisions we make. Yeah, and I would say it would dictate the speed. If something were to go wrong with the stock that you're holding and it's 70% of your portfolio versus 10, those outcomes are drastically different. So the speed at which you diversify, how much you consider taxes, how much you accelerate, just kind of realizing the gains. And there's some things you can definitely do to manage the tax related to that. But I would say velocity really matters. And you're right, Justin, like the taxable, we didn't dial it in more, but how much we move and sell and how aggressive the speed of transition to be 
to kind of diversify really depends on, hey, as a percent of your total balance sheet, how much is this a better gain? Because we've seen it be a really high number of percentage of taxable assets. Well put. Awesome. Well, let's talk about tax because here's the interesting thing here. Like you'll notice in the past two case studies we've done, the tax planning has been very income tax centric. And while you don't ignore that for somebody with a taxable estate, and there's definitely things you could do and things we'll talk about, estate tax has become the big line item because estate tax rates are higher than any any income tax rate. So naturally, the maximum tax you will pay is the estate tax. And so in their case, they pretty much have a taxable estate today. But the problem is compounding. Law of 72 basically says, hey, if this portfolio returns 7%, it doubles in a decade. And it'll do less than a double because you're withdrawing from it. But even if it only has one double over the next 30 years, right, which would be a really aggressive spending rate, that's 25 to 50. So then you're well within the taxable estate range. And that those estate taxes, they will get you. And so the tax planning related to this is, okay, so what are the things we're focusing on? There's annual gift exclusions where you can gift a certain amount per person to each beneficiary every year. So i.e. Teddy and Teresa could both gift their child. Justin, what's the number for 2023? It's about 16,000. 17,000. They they move them up every year. So Teddy and Teresa could gift to one of their kids. We'll say Tommy. They could gift 34,000 to Tommy, 17 from Teresa, 17 from Teddy. So 34,000 a year. So that is a non-reportable event. So i.e. you don't use any of your gift exclusion by doing that. So the estate tax boat is sinking, if you will. So every year, assets should be gifted. There shouldn't be a year that goes by. And we'll talk about which assets might be better or worse to gift. But that's a great starting point, Justin, is like, you got to gift. And like, you got to take advantage of the free, if you will, gifts of an annual gift exclusion that don't change your gift, your accumulated gift. Another quick uh, hypothetical with this, with gifting, we did not cover and we'll leave it open-ended. So we don't know, do Teddy and Teresa have grandkids yet? Because Jared, as you know, there's a lot. The amount that you gift could get enormous really quickly. So hypothetical scenario, what if their three kids are all married? So how many kids are in the family now? Well, there's six. And then what if all of those family units have three kids themselves? Okay, so now they've got nine grandkids. And so you're allowed to give 17,000 from one person to another family member, but Teddy and Teresa, that's two people. So they can give 34,000 to each of their kids. Theoretically, they could include the spouse in there as well. So now we're at what, 68,000 to each of their three kids. 68 times three, so that's 204,000. And then what if they gift to the nine grandkids? So we have 34 times nine, 306,000. So Jared, I was able to just sign Teddy and Teresa up for $500,000 in giving to family members, depending on how big this family is. Yeah, and you sign them up without using any of the gift exclusion. Right. Or like without having tax a, exemption. Yeah. Yeah. Or a state tax exemption without having to report a taxable gift. That's right. Let me just spend 20 seconds there because the estate tax exemption is how much you're allowed to take from your estate and get it out of your estate without paying an estate tax. So if someone passes away with $10 million, they're under the estate tax exemption. But if someone passes away with $100 million, they're over the estate tax exemption. And right now, about 25 million of it is the exemption. So that 25 of the 100 million is not taxable because that's their exemption. But 75 million would be subject to estate tax. So what we're saying here is, hey, if they have grandkids and a big family, they can gift a lot of money every year and still keep their entire estate tax exemption. Precisely. Precisely. Justin, let's talk about number two, optimizing real estate investments. So the interesting thing about real estate is it's got substantial tax benefits, right? There's a bunch of rules that are really compelling and we'll just cover a few. So like when we hear real estate, our ears perk up because there's a few things you can do with real estate that you cannot do with other asset classes, right? One of the things we really like is if the Bozeman condo sits vacant, you can take advantage of what's called the Augusta rule. So up to 14 days, you can rent out your house and that income, if it's less than 14 days, that income is not taxable to you. So if you find peak ski season or the busiest time of the year and you can rent it out for $5,000 a night on the busiest peak time because Bozeman is such a small town, 
that's a substantial amount of income that comes to you tax-free. Another thing that's interesting is bonus depreciation, right? So you can basically depreciate an asset over its useful life and that can off, you know, be a portion of income offset. Essentially, you're just deferring because eventually you'll have a, that'll lower your basis in that asset, but that can lower income today, which is valuable. And it just gives you more future flexibility. And then the other thing is if you have active income, so if you become a real estate professional, there's some active offsets available. So you can, so if you're a real estate professional and the business produces active losses, it could be with taking advantage of depreciation, it can offset other forms of income. Because if otherwise, if you're not an active participant in the business that materially participates, the rental, the real estate may develop a loss, but you can't use it to offset W-2 or portfolio income because it's passive. So by becoming an active participant in the real estate, it can offset other types of income more effectively. So when we see real estate, our ears perk up, we get excited because those are just a few of the high level things, but there's a lot to do there. And that's one of the reasons why we generally recommend real estate is held in taxable accounts, which sounds crazy because it's in or actively held, actively managed real estate should be held in taxable accounts because there's tax incentives. So if you put this in a retirement account, you're not going to get those incentives. When we see real estate and we see that it's held in a taxable account, our ears start perking up because there's a lot of planning we could do and a lot of potential opportunity. Yeah. I want to kind of give a pro and a con here. So a pro, you could theoretically start small with real estate, buy a million dollar piece of real estate, cost segregate, bonus depreciation. You could lower your basis a ton. If it spits off a ton of income, that income could theoretically be tax-free with some of those depreciation potential opportunities. And then you now have this million dollar asset and maybe you've developed it. It's now worth one and a half or 2 million, but your basis is super low. So you have a big potential capital gain but you can just transfer it into a like property. So sell it by a very similar property. Now you've upgraded to a $3 million property. You do another depreciation, potentially cost segregate, and you're again, lowering the income that it spits off. And you could keep doing this rinse, repeat, and defer the taxes on it until you build a $100 million real estate portfolio. And your cost basis could be tiny, but then when you pass away, your children can inherit that real estate and they get a step up in basis. And so there's basically no greater way to navigate the tax code than real estate. Now, the opposite, so the total 180 degree different from what I just said is, Jared, I mentioned this in the beginning, but real estate is a business. And so we have to ask the question, do you want to own a business? Do you want to operate a business? Do both spouses want that? Do the kids want that? And so there is a question of life optimization. Go back to something we said at the beginning. As long as they avoid serious big mistakes, they've won the game. And so they can also ask, what's the life optimal decision here? And if I want to own the business, is a real estate the business I want to own? Maybe you're yeah. a woodworker and like you just want to have a boutique somewhere or you want to just kind of work part-time as a bike mechanic at your favorite mountain bike shop. So even if you decide, hey, I do in fact want to work, is this the type of work you want to do? And so definitely, definitely a big consideration, but a lot to do from a real estate perspective. All right, let's talk about entity considerations because this is one of the things where we talk about it a little bit in other sections, but it's very kind of specific to people with a taxable estate, right? So what I mean by entity considerations is like what bucket owns what asset? So up until this point, you could say, hey, I could have an LLC. Do I own it? Do my kids own it? But there's also some more complex entity ownership structures that you could take advantage of. So with big real estate holdings, you want to make sure that they have an, at least an LLC, right? To protect liability. And one of the issues we see is we see what's called cross-contamination. So like you will have a real estate empire, a bunch of different rentals, and they'll all be in the same LLC, which is an easy way of, if one of the renters sues in one of the properties, they could, all of the assets and all of your real estate portfolio are, are potentially up for grabs. So really easy way to avoid that is to either have separate LLCs or a series LLC, which basically designates sub LLCs within to just kind of limit the liability. So LLC is definitely an interesting thing. Another thing, QPERT, so Qualified Personal Residence Trust, they have substantial assets and we want to think about gifting some out of the estate. So basically with a QPERT, it's a type of trust where you retain the ability to live and utilize the asset, but slowly kind of gift the asset out of your estate. But because you're paying for kind of useful life and rent, it makes it a really 
estate tax effective way to get an asset out of your estate. So a QPERT is something we're looking into of, hey, this could be a good way to kind of lower some estate tax liability and get this asset out of your estate. Another big one, Justin, we could probably dedicate a whole episode to, and my bet is we will, is a family limited partnership. And we're just kind of a high level. It's basically a holding company for business ventures. And so a few awesome things about the family limited partnership is there's different classes of partners. So you can have GPs and LPs. So with that, why that is valuable is you could gift LP assets to the kids, but still retain all of the voting principles. So you can retain all of the control, but essentially none of the underlying assets or income, which is really exciting. There's also potentially valuation discounts. So because FLPs, depending on what they're invested in, are a little less liquid, instead of going back to your example, Justin, of, hey, 17,000 per beneficiary, maybe you could gift 20, 25,000 of FLP interest because they're less liquid. So still not using the estate exemption, but gift more in FLP assets. So FLP also, but kind of a con against it is a lot more administrative work and a lot more burdensome. And it kind of depends on the portfolio. But, and those are just a few that we've seen and that are really kind of interesting on top of just kind of the general estate planning stuff that are really specific to people with taxable estates. And then the other thing that's interesting is like crummy trust. So basically setting up entities for trust vehicles for the grandkids where they basically, to actually give it to them, they have to have the ability to kind of invest it. So it satisfies that rule, but it basically retains it for children. So I'm not going to go too far in the weeds, but the container that the asset is held in and the tax consequences and the valuation and the future opportunities really becomes something you should have an airtight plan for each of those assets. And of all those buckets we talk about, we could talk about all those things have different pros and cons. And so the types of assets you put in there have different pros and cons. So it's kind of like a really big puzzle of, hey, what buckets do I need? And then what assets do I have are best suited for the buckets? And so entity consideration is a really big point here. Justin, what would you add to that? Yeah, I think that's really good. You mentioned potentially the idea of getting a discounted valuation on what you're giving to children. So I mentioned if each child was married and had three kids, then this family could give over 500,000 a year. And even if that valuation discount allows you to go from 17,000 to 24,000 a year, well, that's a pretty sizable increase. You might be able to go from 500,000 total giving to 750,000 a year. Jared, want to repeat the idea. Planning gets really powerful when you do disciplined small things each year over a long period of time. And so if you can gift, let's say there's no valuation discount, and this Teddy and Teresa are gifting 500000 a year in assets to their family, we'll do that over 10 years. $5 million is now out of their estate without using their estate tax exemption. If they live 30 more years, $15 million out of their estate without using any of their exemption amount. That's exactly right. So, so a lot of this comes to gifting and figuring out how to do that. Entity consideration is huge in that part. Yeah. So let's talk about income, right? Because most of the taxes up to this point have been estate tax planning centric and these even income planning will be involved here. But so income planning, when you're at this point, you're kind of thinking through some of the same things, like thinking about lifetime tax rate. Are there any periods where there's abnormally high or abnormally low taxes? And if that's the case from an income tax perspective, maybe an opportunity to, you know, if taxes are low, let's accelerate some income. If taxes are high, let's defer some income. Thinking about the life cycle of somebody with this, there's a few things that you need to think about, right? Okay, how much income is the portfolio producing? Is it really tax efficient? Like if I have a you know $15 million equity portfolio and the dividend yield is 2%, that's 300 grand in income right there. All those dividends better be qualified. We want to talk and make sure, okay, hey, the portfolio is managed correctly. But something specific for this demographic we're thinking about is, okay, do any of the entities have carry forward losses that would need to be considered? And then another big thing is, okay, what's the timeline for private investment? So typically, like for a private investment, it doesn't exist in perpetuity. A lot of times there's a point where you know, the fund will kind of dissolve and capital will be returned to the shareholders, right? And at that point, if if it's an excess of what you paid for it and you've been depreciating along the way, that's going to be a big taxable event. So the mile markers rather than, hey, social security does matter, but we're thinking about, okay, are there any liquidity events from private investments that create adverse tax impacts, right? Are there is there any portfolio income or capital gains distributions that we need to be aware of that create kind of some asymmetric income? So 
those are kind of some of the events that create income, but Roth conversions, still something we're planning for in a low income year. Roth conversions are also really interesting because if you inherit a pre-tax IRA and you're a non-spouse beneficiary, generally you have to deplete the account within 10 years. Roth, you have an RMD on an annual basis, but that's not taxed. So the future tax bill for future generations is very different. One, you have to take over 10 years and as you take it, it's income taxable. Roth, you do not have to take it. So if you think about potentially uh, you know, 40% estate tax rate, Roth conversions are become more compelling, maybe at higher rates than they would have been for people in the other buckets. Because if the estate tax is what you're facing, and I can realize income at 30%, I no way I probably would have done that for uh, Emohine, Exxon. But in this case, it might make a ton of sense. Capital gains, another thing we're big consideration of, hey, I have an embedded stock portfolio. What am I going to do? How am I going to transition the assets to the bucket I want to have? Do I realize the cap gains? Do I, as I realize the cap gains, make a big charitable deduction to kind of manage the tax liability of those cap gains? Or do I hold them indefinitely and just wait for the step up in basis? Or do I give them to my beneficiaries because their capital gains rate is little to nothing? There's a ton of different things you can do, um, but something you want to keep in mind. And then income planning cash is right. Like with yields at 5%, man, you'd be surprised how many people we come across that are basically getting less than 1% on their cash. So, hey, we definitely want to increase the yield on that and maybe with municipal bonds to lower the, make that tax-free income. But these are all kind of the things we're thinking about related to income planning. So still a lot of the same dials and levers, but Roth conversions, we may be great. You know, we just adjust the strategy a little bit because the thing we're solving for and the numbers are just different. Justin, what would you add there? Jared, if you have kind of a traditional retirement balance sheet, and let's say you have three or four million, five or six million in pre-tax assets, and then you have some non-retirement assets. Well, in that case, it's a systematic year by year over a five to 10 year period, partial Roth conversion, really simple tax rate arbitrage. You do a conversion at 12%, that's going to be way better than a future tax rate at 25%. And so you operate that plan a little bit year by year. In a situation like Teddy and Teresa, you start to ask the question, are there years where you could plan one big Roth conversion and it could be partially offset by some things that can lower that income number? It could be pass through losses in one of the LLCs that they own. So does the vending machine business, did it buy a bunch of equipment that basically erodes all of the revenue that it makes, and is the vending machine going to have a, a year where it passes through a loss? Or it could also be, hey, Teddy and Teresa, charitable giving is probably going to be a, a major component that they consider. So at this level, do they want to structure a charitable gift and a bigger one in one year that can partially offset some of a Roth conversion? So they have Amazon. Let's say they bought Amazon for 50,000 bucks is now worth 5 million bucks. And maybe they do want to establish either a charitable trust or just do a really large gift to a donor advice fund that's going to kind of act as the bulk of their charitable giving for the rest of their life. And they can get rid of that capital gain and they can also coincide that with a larger Roth conversion. And so Maybe they do a $500,000 charitable gift, and maybe they have LLCs that have passed through losses, and they coordinate that in the right year with an opportune Roth conversion time. So differences, there's so many moving parts here. There could be an opportunity for one really effective Roth conversion compared to someone with $4 million in an IRA. That's more of a year by year. We're going to convert the same amount each year. That's right. And so this next point on the tax case study is estate planning. But essentially what we mean by this is, hey, thinking about when your tax planning and estates are involved, you're thinking about, okay, what are the future tax rates of the children? What assets are they inheriting? And what are the capital gains consequences? And we've talked about those, but that needs to be front and center, right? Because you're no longer just thinking about generation one, you're thinking about generation two and potentially generation three. And generational skipping trusts are another thing that we don't even have time to cover, but another consideration there. And the last thing I'll say with- We'll come back to that. Yeah. And the last thing related to tax is liquidity planning. This with people for, in our experience, people with taxable estates, they like to deploy capital opportunistically. They find a friend who's putting a house on the market and in a space they want to be in, or they have a friend who's starting a business and they know they might not make any money, but they want to support said friend. Or 
they want to invest in a restaurant or whatever it is, right? Life happens and these people want a portion of their assets liquid, right? The worst thing we could do is say, not understand their liquidity and capital calls and all that stuff. The worst thing we could do is say, hey, we're not going to consider any of that and we're just going to invest your entire portfolio that doesn't have a large capital gain super aggressively. And then a year goes by and they need money and pretty much every bucket they could tap that's liquid all has a substantial embedded gain. So thinking about constructing a tax-efficient portfolio, you need to understand the future liquidity needs and they're withdrawing half a million dollars a year. So that plus kind of one-off plus what we would call having some dry powder for opportunistically deploying a capital or investing or spending it on family things, like those need to be considered because otherwise you could kind of back yourself into a corner with a tax from a tax liability perspective. Yeah. And I want to share this in 30 seconds because we need to move on. But you mentioned that cash, you can make 5% today on cash. It would be ideal if you can locate most of that in an IRA because making 5% in a CD is taxable income. So if they have a bunch of other income tax and they have a bunch of other income that hits as income tax, well, then they don't necessarily need more CD interest that counts as taxable income. So locating that in an IRA could be strategic. And I know you're thinking, well, then it's not dry powder. It's in an IRA. They can't just go spend that. Well, let's say the market crashes and there is an opportunity that they want to deploy capital well, they can harvest losses in the brokerage account, change that around. So sell those positions, purchase them in the IRA with the cash. And we've just located assets in a different way to try and limit some of the burden that that taxable interest can create. That's exactly right. And Justin, if you want to go to the next slide, this kind of touches perfect segue into the next slide, right? Which is income planning. So a big part of taxes is also planning around your income. One of the things Justin's talking about, okay, is how tax efficient is your income? We don't want to spit off more income than necessary, and especially more taxable income than necessary. So thinking about, hey, utilizing this tax deferred bucket for less tax efficient investments to reduce kind of portfolio income is great. Making sure all the dividends are qualified, taking advantage of low income tax years and municipal fixed income, no reason to own corporates in your taxable account. So one of the things we're looking at is like, hey, how tax efficient is that? Another piece is, okay, is depreciation being utilized? So like if we have these other entities that are utilizing depreciation, they can report, have losses being reported, right? So we want to understand, okay, what are the amounts of losses? What is the type of loss? What future income or capital gains or things could it potentially offset? That's another thing that we want to be aware of. Justin, anything you'd add to those first two? I don't think so. Okay, cool. So how do we maximize retirement income? We want to consider taxes, but at the end of the day, taxes are a function of more income. So we're not going to reduce portfolio income just for the sake of lowering taxes. You know, we still want to reduce, we want to increase after-tax portfolio income. We don't want to reduce income. We want to increase after-tax portfolio income and increasing tax efficiency is one of the ways to do that. And so just making sure the portfolio is structured appropriately with large expenses. Hey, income planning, okay, what are the tax brackets for kids? Because when estate is the big tax liability you're solving for, you're thinking about the kids' tax brackets, right? So if you have an asset like embedded stock, instead of gifting cash to the kids, you could gift shares of Chevron is the example you use for Teddy and Teresa. You could gift really low basis Chevron and they would get your cost basis and they could sell it. And depending on the tax bracket they're in, they might have a zero, 10% capital gain versus you being in the 23.8% cap gains bracket. That's another thing that's really valuable. And like income planning becomes multidimensional, multi-generational, right? You're not just thinking about your income tax. You're thinking about, okay, what are my kids' income tax? What are my grandkids' income tax? And most at their age, their grandkids probably aren't independent having their own tax return yet, but definitely something you're solving for as they get older and, and understanding, okay, hey, at least generation two, what is their tax situation? Because maybe today they're early in their career, lower income, newly married, big mortgage, you know, big itemized deduction with a ton of mortgage interest. And so could be an opportunity to accelerate some gifting and take advantage of those low tax brackets because income generally goes up over time if you apply yourself and end up in the right place. Yeah, Jared, I really think about their situation as income planning is you have X amount of dollars and you're taking, I don't know, four or 5% from your balance sheet every year. You're taking that from your assets in the form of income. With taxable estates, it's kind of a matter of What's your family structure? How many kids do you have? What is the kid's financial situation like? Just like you mentioned, if a 
child is married and their income is $50,000, well, you could give $68,000 in Chevron stock. And if your cost basis is $18,000, well, they can sell all of that on their tax return. So that capital gain shows up for them. And in that hypothetical, they would not pay any tax. It'd be at a 0% tax rate. And so, so much of income planning and it ties in with tax planning, it's kind of thinking through, okay, here's the portfolio I have, and that's in partially in an IRA, partially in a brokerage, partially in a Roth, and trying to figure out which tax registration should I tap from first, second, third, and then within each tax registration, especially the brokerage accounts, which part of the portfolio do I tap into first? And so there's just so many ways to divvy that up. Yeah. And then too, right? Like those are connected, right? Like, okay, when do we take social security? It kind of depends on what your income looks like. But generally, you know, we're big fans of the deferral, but that's not always the case. And then, okay, Medicare premiums. Generally with this amount of income, you're signed up for the highest bracket, but maybe a few years in there, we can be on the lower end, but probably not. But it is something we're aware of. If you're right on the fringe and close, it may be something that's worth solving for, but you might have income that kind of blows you right past it. So it's not a ton you can do, but really it's a person by person situation. Absolutely. All right, Justin, let's talk about risk management. So risk management really matters, right? And so one of the big risk management pieces we've touched on a little bit is estate liquidity. So these, Teddy and Teresa are in a good spot. So they have a big brokerage portfolio, right? So let's say you do get to the point where your estate is taxable. Your family has to come up with a way to pay that estate tax liability. If you're worth $100 million and you don't gift any of it, which we hope you wouldn't end up in that spot, you would have about $75 million that's taxable. And then at a tax rate of 40%. So what is that? A little over 30 million? 30 million. In, in a state, yeah, a little over 30 million in a state tax due. For this family, you hope that their private portfolio will hopefully, you know, if they continue to compound, their brokerage assets could serve as a great source for funding the liquidity if the market's not in a downturn, right? So, but for a private business owner, if 90% of that is held in a business, the estate doesn't have the liquidity to pay that debt. So more applicable to, if the how that this person arrived at getting the taxable estate was a private business. So if everything is held privately, it could create an issue where your estate is not liquid enough to pay the estate tax liability. Of course, we want to plan for that and minimize that, but big risk management thing. You don't want to be in a spot where you have to unload a family business because of an estate tax bill. And Jared, we've worked in situations where there may be a huge estate tax And it is possible where you can pay that to the IRS over several years. And so it's not necessarily a scenario where the IRS knocks on your door and they say, please give me $30 million right now. But you still have to, even though you can pay it out over several years, you still have to ask the question, are the assets or the privately held businesses in a healthy enough position to pull that off? Even if they don't have to write the check day one, well, can they make those payments and reasonably execute that estate tax over a period of time? Yeah, but ideally you manage estate liquidity so you don't get in that spot in the first place. In Teddy and Teresa's space, right? If they go have, if, if they spend out all their equity portfolio and then the private investments, they you know every time the portfolio produces income, they buy a private investment that could create some estate tax liquidity issues. So understanding it today, hopefully we should avoid that note, but it is worth calling out, Justin, that a lot of times the IRS will work with you to make sure they get paid. Okay, this one is really simple, right? Umbrella insurance becomes huge here. So we've talked about it in past episodes, but protected assets usually have a homestead exemption. So a certain amount of property, personal property on your primary residence, so secondary would not be included, is protected. And then retirement accounts are generally protected, depends on the state, but generally, right? Those are protected things, i.e. if somebody sues you, they can't come after those assets. But thinking about Teddy and Teresa's balance sheet, it is way overweight taxable assets. And so what I mean by that, it's way overweight taxable assets that are fair game to creditors. So everybody use the analogy of like, if you hit a bus full of doctors, what is the potential, you know, and and they want to come after you and know that you're a well-to-do person in town. What is the potential that they could come after? So umbrella insurance, you should have a massive amount of it, at least to kind of cover all of the taxable assets in your estate. It's a no-brainer. Coverage is really expensive or uh, really cost-effective and can really protect you in that low probability catastrophic event, which is why you have insurance in the first place. Business insurance, I would say that really matters too. So like they have some active, they're more passively invested kind of in hedge funds and private credit funds. So they're usually 
LP structure, so you have limited liability. But if they have an active family business, you want to make sure the business also has is well insured, right? Because if a substantial portion of your balance sheet is tied to that asset, you want to make sure it's structured to where you don't have any liability on that and that asset's properly insured. Next, you want to limit liability of private investments. So just generally, if it's a professional management investment company, they should have really buttoned up documentation that kind of insulates you as a LP. And if you're taking a GP role for whatever reason, you would want definitely a lot of control and understanding as to why that's the vehicle because liability could change there, but also just know what type of investments you're purchasing and what is the expectation in terms of liability and opportunity. So generally the GPLP structure is really great because you know limited partners generally have limited liability, but not all the time. So definitely want to check your documentation and see what you're kind of on the hook for. Justin, balance sheet transformation. What do we mean by that? Well, parts of your balance sheet are protected from creditors and parts of your balance sheet are not. And so we want to look through all of the assets that you own. And actually, I'll I'll kind of back up. Jared, risk management is simply asking every part of your financial life, what's the worst thing that could happen? And how do I either lower the probability of that happening or lower the consequence of if that does happen, the price that I pay in that scenario is not going to be as bad. And so balance sheet transformation, trying to think through how do we move our balance sheet from protected assets or from non-protected assets to protected assets. And so you mentioned brokerage assets, they are not protected from creditors. So when we think about gifting one scenario, $500,000 a year to family to lower a future estate tax problem, and we think about spending $500,000 a year. So that could be a million dollars a year that's coming out of the family's balance sheet. Well, let's try and take those from parts of the balance sheet that are not protected from creditors. You do that for 10 years, your balance sheet's going to look a lot different. Yeah, that's exactly right. But you pull that out and you pull out the gifts. And then the question becomes, is the person on the other side in a position to optimize, right? Like, so, and this gets to kids, right? Are they risky? And like spouses of kids, because one of the big scenarios you did is like, hey, you could give half a million dollars, but also that's going to a spouse as well. And like, we hope that everything works out for the long term, but also people change and things happen. So also kind of understanding it through that lens, you don't want to go balance sheet transformation so far that you find out that money in law, just marriage has been dissolved or even with your kids, there's substance abuse issues and things like that. So like risk management also thinking through, hey, I want to minimize the estate tax, but also whoever's getting it on the other side, it's not a liability for them or a potential liability for me that I'm now having to manage. So biggest way to do that is through how you construct estate planning and just making sure you have the proper documents and controls in place to set everybody up for success. And I would kind of say contingency plans, right? Estate planning has good contingency planning, but just making sure that, hey, the inheritor's there's some risk there. It's not riskless, right? Like you are foregoing this asset. So you want to make sure that G2 and G3 are in the right position to utilize it. Yeah, Jared, that's why wealth management, financial planning is such an interesting, fun line of work to be in. Every family's different. And so, you know, we mapped out a bunch of potential gifts they could make to family, which tax-wise is a huge opportunity for this family. But maybe they need to consider some sort of bloodline trust. And maybe there is a spouse that they don't trust, that they don't want to just give assets to. And so they want their assets to only flow through to their children and then their children's children. And so depending on family structure and just like you mentioned, who's on the other end of this gift, that influences a lot of what we do. Also, Jared, it's kind of funny that we're on the risk management slide and we're still talking about investments, taxes. All of these topics are just so intertwined. You can't solve any of these in a vacuum. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we're also talking, a lot of this is estate planning, which is our next slide. Risk management and estate planning kind of go hand in hand. So like some high level things. Do you have an existing estate plan? If it is existing, okay, how fresh is it? So like we've talked about this ad nauseum, but ancillary documents, medical directives, HIPAA, power of attorneys, all those things. And that's some sort of will or I probably a trust at this point because of kind of managing the complexity. So hopefully you have that in place, but it's probably hasn't been updated. And your asset, think about, okay, how much has my family and my asset situation changed since the last time I did my estate plan? And if it's a material amount, then it's probably time to refresh. And then this is the chance where, hey, either do I update my existing plan or do I do a complete overhaul? 
and utilize some of the strategies and invest in, in charitable vehicles or the QPERTs or the FLPs, right? Some of those other holding containers that have different tax consequences, right? But a good place to start is, okay, what do I have and is it still appropriate? Two is interest very timely. So the estate exemption, Justin, we're talking about it's 25 million for a married couple, but that is set to sunset in 2026. And I don't, what's it going to go back down to? Do you know? That's the funny thing. No one knows exactly. So it's, yeah. it's technically going to kind of cut in half, but then they're going to apply inflation bumps. And so long story short, I mean, it could end up being 10, 15 million for a married couple. And those are two very different numbers, 10 million versus 15 million. Yeah. So there's kind of a big looming question, but we know a state exemption is historically high and it's going to sunset back to something else that's probably going to be lower. So like, does that mean you need to accelerate some of your estate planning by taking advantage of this annual gift, exi- you know, this is estate exemption that's high, ab- above average by historical standards. We don't know what the future holds, but could be a good time to consider that. Annual gifting. We talked about this a lot earlier. We talked about this from income tax. We talked about this, but it is also an estate planning strategy, right? Gift, gift, gift. If you have a taxable estate and this is you, like that's one of the single biggest takeaways you can implement tomorrow to just stop the bleeding from an estate tax perspective, a year shouldn't go by. And then kind of 2.0 on that is like, okay, what assets do I gift and when? Like we've talked about this as well, but not all assets are created equal. Ideally, you want the highest growing assets to be gifted so that appreciation happens in your kids' accounts outside of your estate. And if there's assets that give you tax advantages, maybe you don't want to gift those because you're in a higher bracket than your family is. So there's gifting, like, hey, making the decision of, hey, I'm going to gift every year is a great decision and it'll get you 80% of the way there. 2.0 basically says, hey, which assets do I gift and when and what are the various trade-offs and estate planning consequences related to that from a, a long-term perspective? Jared, there's so much that I want to add on this. Uh, I know. I, we might have to do another one because we're running long and I, I, I still feel like we're just kind of like flying through. Can I just say a so, few quick things? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so one scenario is with the number two estate tax exemption sunset. If a family has 500 million or 50 million, well, yeah, definitely make sure you fill up your estate tax exemption before the laws change and do it in a strategic way. Now, this family has 25 million. Some of it's in IRA accounts and they've got a big family so they can do a ton of gifting. So there's a give and take when you fill up your estate tax exemption. You are removing assets from your estate, which inherently on some level, depending on what type of trust you do, you are losing control over some of those assets. That is a big con. And so it's not as simple as, well, the estate tax exemption is 25. They have 25. Just remove everything from the estate. Well, now Teddy and Teresa are 65 and they technically have nothing to their name. And they don't control those assets anymore. So they probably don't want to do that, right? And if the new estate tax exemption ends up being 15 million, well, then they could probably fill that up and still be in a great spot with annual gifting. And another scenario, what if they don't have three kids, Jared? What if they have one kid and that one kid is married with four kids? And what if that one family unit is independently wealthy themselves? Well, then they might want to think through, you mentioned this earlier, a generation skipping trust. And they might want to just pass these right on down to the grandkids. And so family structure, the type of assets you own, the amount of assets you own, there's so many different paths you can take. There's not one clear textbook answer because the way that you get to a taxable estate has so many different ways that you get there and so many different ways your balance sheet is going to look like that the solution, boy, there's a lot of them. Yeah. And it's a highly personal. What works for you is doesn't work for somebody else. And Can so, I add one more thing? Yeah, go ahead. And I keep, I, I mean, I'm adding so many things. I say one, I'm probably going to add 10 things. Education, communication. This is so critical. Teddy and Teresa have a big family and that family needs to begin to think through some investment education and they need to start to think as partners in the family because they are going to receive a lot. And so for them to be good, healthy stewards of what they're going to receive, they need to be equipped to do so. You mentioned in this case study, part of their wealth is they just happened to buy Amazon in the early 2000s, and now it's worth millions and millions of dollars more. 
And so there needs to be an education to the children, just even on an investment level. Hey, we're not successful because of that trade. We're successful because of that investment. A trade is a one-time thing. Where they really made their money was they let a great company compound for decades. That's how they made their money on Amazon. It wasn't just a trade. I would say they actually made their money by holding it when it was in a 50% drawdown. That's when they really made their money, right? Is by that not, like was the impressive part. That That's the thing that made it be what it was, right? Because everybody looks at Amazon and says, man, in hindsight, that was easy. It's like, no, the number of 50% or more drawdowns on the way there was substantial. So that that's really where they made their money, but great lesson there. And then more investment education on, hey, uh, this worked out really well, but no, you probably shouldn't have half of your balance sheet in one stock. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, Justin. And like, again, we're just, I feel like we got to make another one or something, but communication really needs to happen, right? Because if you bump up annual gift exclusions, like your family is going to start getting money. So having a conversation about, hey, here is why I'm giving you this money. Here is what I hope it accomplishes. Here is what is coming down the pipeline in the future so that they can plan accordingly. And like, we want to, we've talked about a lot of estate planning through the tax lens, but also like the life optimal lens of like, we'd be remiss if we didn't say, hey, if most of the money you give is when you die, the utility of that to you is low. You don't get to enjoy it or see how it makes a tangible benefit in their life, right? And if you think about your family, their income's the lowest it's going to be, and they get a lot of opportunities. So communicate, and I would say gift and enjoy along the way. If kids need help purchasing their dream home and you need to use some of your annual gift exclusion, great, great use of that money, right? And a really exciting way to deploy capital. But communicate and say, hey, here's what I'm giving you. Here's why I'm giving it to you. Here's what's coming down the pike. And just so that they understand kind of what's going on and can get involved and excited about it. Totally. And then- yeah, the other one is just tax planning, which is this, right? So like for our viewers, uh, you've seen this slide before, but for people listening, it just kind of shows lifetime tax rates over various points of time. The one edit we made to this slide relative to the last slide is we call the golden age of critical planning window, post-retirement, pre-RMD. That for the average person is no taxes, but for somebody with a taxable estate, it's lower taxes because you got a ton going on and a ton of portfolio income and brokerage assets producing income. So you're not really in any... There's not really any no income period, which is kind of par for the course. And it's just, it's the nature of having substantial assets, which is great. But that being said, if you delay social security and you wait to start RMDs, your income is still going to be lower post-retirement, pre-RMD, pre-social security. So could be a good time to accelerate some conversions, could be a good time to realize some income, could be a good time to realize some cap gains to transition the portfolio. Because we're still thinking about lifetime tax rates. But the highs are going to be higher and the lows aren't going to be as low just by nature of how your portfolio and assets are constructed. Justin, what would you add there? I think first thing I would add is, yes, we know the required minimum distribution age is no longer 72. There's just so much question as to where that's going to end up that I'm not even going to change it yet. So it is what it is. Let's see. Other thing is there's not this perfect planning window like there is if you have $5 million. And so the simplest way to think about tax planning is you have your assets here in a bucket. And what you're trying to do is remove some assets from your estate. And then you want that bucket, the bucket that includes the assets that you've removed from your estate, you want that bucket to grow more than the bucket that is assets still in your estate. So that's the way to think about it. You have money in two different places. One has a better tax exposure. One has a, a higher, worse tax exposure. You want the better tax exposure buckets to grow more than the worse high tax buckets. Yeah, it's like asset location 2.0. With the past case study, we said, hey, a dollar of tax-free growth is more valuable than a dollar of pre-tax growth. And so this is kind of, you inject estate planning into it. A dollar that grows outside of your estate is more valuable than a dollar that grows inside of your estate. Because if you have a potentially estate tax liability, you have to take a you know estate tax haircut. So locating assets to increase the after estate tax value of your estate, really valuable thing and something that should be considered and planned for. That's so good. Justin, we went way longer than I thought and we covered way less than I wanted to, but I hope that this has kind of been helpful. If you have ideas for another case study or want us to go deeper on one of the aspects or one of the case studies, we're happy to love hearing from our listeners uh, and we hope you found this helpful. 
Subscribe, like, review, repost, reshare, and send us feedback. Podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.